All right, let's turn to Titus chapter 1. We are kind of methodically working through the book of Titus. It's not a very long book. There's a lot that it has to say to us, to teach us. And so we don't want to rush through. So at Christ Fellowship, we are an elder-ruled church, and we are in the process, actually, of training up and getting ready to ordain some new elders. And as we're teaching through Titus, uh, we come to the part of Paul's letter to Titus where he addresses elders. And so today, we're going to look at Titus chapter 1, verses 4 through 9, and we're going to look at what Paul commanded Titus in regard to eldership in the church. So I'm going to read to you Titus chapter 1, beginning in verse 4 through verse 9. To Titus, a true son in our common faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children not accused of dissipation or insubordination, for a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. This is the word of the Lord. Well, Father, we ask that you would open our hearts and minds today to your, your word, to this gospel. That you would lead us and guide us by your Holy Spirit and that you would teach us. God, we ask that you would mold us and shape us into a people that would bring glory to your name. That we would be bright lights, bright witnesses in the darkness of this world. That we would show men not only through our words, but through our lives, the hope that is found in Jesus. Father, we ask these things for your glory and the glory of your church. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Titus chapter 1, verse 4. So we've, uh, we've spent some time going through this very, very theologically rich uh, greeting that comprise the first three verses of Titus chapter 1, this letter. Now in verse 4, Paul turns and he personally greets Titus. And in this personal greeting to Titus, he communicates his, he communicates his affection for Titus. But more than that, he communicates 
a truth about Titus and the relationship he had with the Apostle Paul. Paul writes to Titus, a true son in our common faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. Now, the book of Titus, along with the book of 1 and 2 Timothy, are a little bit different than uh, many of the other books of the New Testament. Um, the difference between, for instance, Titus and the Gospel of Mark or Matthew or John or Luke is, is pretty obvious. One's a record of Jesus' earthly ministry, and the other is a personal letter written to a person. But they all have their place. And so what I want to point out about Titus, and in particular First and Second Timothy, is that Paul is writing these letters not as much to a church as he is to the pastor of the church. And that's what Titus and, and Timothy are. They are letters that the apostle writes to these men who he calls sons in the faith. Titus he calls a true son in our common faith. So Titus is Paul's true spiritual son, or literally his genuine child in the faith. Now Titus wasn't Paul's biological son. He was his son in the faith. In other words, Paul led Titus to faith in Christ, Paul raised up Titus in the faith, discipled him, and now Titus is a pastor, he's a shepherd, overseeing the flock of God. And so Paul calls Titus his true spiritual son, his genuine child in the faith, and because Paul was instrumentally used by God in Titus coming to faith in Christ. And we know this because Paul references this in Galatians chapter 2, verse 3. And in that letter to the Galatians, that letter he writes to the whole church, he, he mentions Titus by name. Titus was a Greek. Thus, Paul refers to him as a genuine child in their common faith. So, their common faith. Why would Paul qualify it that way. Because as a disciple of Paul, he's referring to their common faith, meaning the faith of a Jew or the faith of a Greek or a Gentile. So the common faith between a Jew like Paul and a Greek like Titus affirms Paul's declaration in in his other letters, in particular in Colossians and Galatians, the declaration that Paul writes in those letters that there is now no longer Jew nor Greek. Now, Paul's not saying there aren't Jews and there aren't Greeks. Paul's saying in terms of Christ, from the point of view of the Father, there is no longer Jews and there is no longer Greeks or Gentiles. There's no longer Jews and non-Jews ethnically speaking, in terms of the relationship men now have with God. So Paul was a Jew, Titus was a Greek. 
Or we could say it like this. Paul was a Jew. Titus was a Gentile. And Paul says Titus to Titus, my genuine child in our common faith. In other words, Paul the Jew and Titus the Greek had a common faith. It was faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And because of that common faith, there was no distinction between the Jew and the Greek. God didn't love Paul the Jew more than he loved Titus the Greek because Paul was a Jew. There were a lot of people in Paul's day, and guess what? There are a lot of people in our day today who believe that God loves Jews more than he loves Gentiles. That God recognizes them and has a plan for them apart from even the plan of redemption in his son. And that is straight up a doctrine from the pit of hell. There is one path to salvation and that is Jesus Christ. And it doesn't matter if you were born in Israel and you could trace your lineage back to Abraham or you were born in Iceland and you are the ancestor of Leif Erikson, the barbarian. If you are in Christ, there is now no longer Jew or Greek, slave or free, or barbarian. But Christ is all and in all. That's what Paul writes in his letters. And he says, Titus, you are my genuine child in our common faith, our faith in Jesus Christ. Those distinctions of Jew and Greek or Jew and Gentile, slave and free, of rich and poor, of barbarian, educated or uneducated, those distinctions are gone in Christ. For Christ is all and in all. And truly, for the one who is born again by the Spirit, their identity is now according to the Spirit in Christ and no longer according to the flesh. That's good news for every one of us here. This greeting from Paul to Titus also provided the necessary authority that Titus needed to carry out Paul's command, the command concerning the churches, that Titus is to go into all the cities and appoint elders. Titus is referred to as a partner and co-worker with Paul and a messenger of the church in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 23. And that's what he is here. And so when Paul calls him his genuine child and when he charges him to go and do these things, he's not only personally recognizing Titus, but he is putting his personal stamp of approval and authority for Titus to go and carry out his commands. And then he, then he says this. This is a very common. This is very common in Paul's letters. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ our Savior. Not all manuscripts have the mercy in there. Grace and peace from God the Father. You see that very often in Paul's letters, grace and peace. Here in Titus, in the King James, in the manuscripts that came from the King James, the word mercy is in there. Grace, mercy, and peace. It's very consistent with what Paul declares in all of his other letters, and there's no reason for us to not accept it as being there. 
you have a translation that doesn't have it, it's okay. Doesn't change anything. This is a greeting. But there is something unique about this greeting. There's a reason why Paul writes grace and peace. He didn't do that just because it sounds kind of cool. Grace and peace. Paul, the apostle. He, he didn't do it for that reason. He did it for a, a specific reason. Because grace and peace was a common salutation used by Paul in his letters because it was a common salutation in his day. Now, it wasn't grace and peace together. But what's interesting here is that the word for grace in the Greek is the word charis, which Paul may be using as a play on words because the Greek word for greeting is the word carrion, and it was a common greeting. So when Paul says grace, charis, it's a play on the common Greek greeting that your average Greek. Greetings. It'd be like us. Greetings. Except in Greek, it's Karen. Well, grace, the word grace in, in the Greek is charis, Karen. You see the play on words. And so that was the Greek or the Gentile greeting. Do you know what the Jewish greeting was. Shalom. Do you know what shalom means? It means peace. Shalom. Peace. Grace and peace. Paul the apostle, the Jewish apostle to the Gentile world, wrote quite often in his letters, grace and peace which if you were reading it in its original language would immediately appear, you would, you would see the greetings here. You would see that Paul is speaking to the world, to all the world, Jewish and non-Jewish, grace and peace. In essence, Paul Christianized these words as the salutation, grace, and peace, and it became common among the believers. It blended common Jewish and common Greek salutations into one common expression of Christian love and faith. This is especially true with the qualification that this grace, peace, and mercy comes from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. The grace and peace that God gives to us, that is his mercy. Here Paul is bringing out the distinctions of the triune Godhead. Not just grace and peace, not just grace, mercy, and peace, but grace, mercy, and peace from... God the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. The addition of our Savior there is unique in Paul's letters. And Paul adds it on purpose here because Paul is writing to this pastor, and we're going to see as we go through Titus, that this truth of Christ, our Savior, is a theme that Paul is hitting on in this letter to this pastor. 
In other words, it's not accidental that Paul points out those distinctions and, and brings this out. He has a reason for it. He's drawing Titus' attention to this. In other words, he's saying, pay attention. Remember this. Don't forget this. He brings out the distinctions of the triune Godhead, specifically the Father and the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul goes on to specify that the Lord Jesus Christ is our Savior. And this is consistent with the theme that we're going to see in this letter as we go on and, and continue studying it. After Paul's personal greeting to Titus, he instructs him concerning his responsibilities as a pastor and overseer of the church established there in Crete. Now, Paul is very wise in how he's doing this. He's getting ready to drop onto Titus a very heavy responsibility. But before he drops this heavy responsibility that, that could potentially be crushing for Titus, I mean, let's be honest, we, we read about these men in the Bible and we think that they're somehow superhuman and they're not. Titus is just an ordinary guy who had an extraordinary calling upon his life. And he was raised up and discipled spiritually by the Apostle Paul, but he was still just a human being. He was still just a man in need of God's grace, in need of God's peace, in need of God's mercy. And Paul is reminding him, Titus, you are my genuine child in our common faith. We don't have a different faith, Titus. That means we don't have a different Savior. We don't have a different God and Father. We don't have a different Lord. And he's reminding Titus of these things. And then in verse 5, he says, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. For this reason I left you in Crete. Remember last week we talked about this, that there is a reason for everything that God does. Remember the words of Solomon from Ecclesiastes 3.1. To everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven. There is a reason and a season for everything. <clears throat> a time for every purpose under heaven. In Paul communicating the reason he left Titus in Crete, he reminds us of the overarching greater purpose bound up in the reasons and the seasons of God. Now, Paul is going to give very specific tasks here to Titus. But overarching those specific tasks and practical applications is this overarching truth that God has a purpose in everything. God has a reason in everything. And Paul is saying very simply, the reason I left you in Crete was to finish our unfinished business and to appoint elders. So the eternal, the eternal purpose of God has very practical application. 
Sometimes we read the Bible and we see these great overarching truths and we lose sight of the practical application. And I don't, how, I don't, I don't care how great and overarching the truth is, there's always a, a practical application. There's something we can take of that and, and we are to apply it to our lives as we live out our lives. The reason for leaving Titus in Crete was to set in order the things that are lacking and to appoint elders in every city as commanded. That's what Paul writes here. So let's consider the reason that Paul left Titus there in Crete. First, he says that you should set in order the things that are lacking. Now, some people believe that this is really all just one thing, but I don't, I don't read it that way. I don't believe it that way. I think there are two things right here in this introduction that, that Paul is writing to Titus. The first reason I left you there was to set in order the things that are lacking and to appoint elders in every city. So Paul left Titus in Crete to further the, the way the structure of the language here is you're going to further set an order. You're going you're to take what we began and you're going to carry it on. You're going to take it further than I did when I was in Crete. You're going to further set in order the things that are lacking or the things that remain undone. That's really what's being communicated here. Paul is saying, Titus, there's a lot of unfinished work. We got a good start, but I left you in Crete so that you could finish that unfinished work. Paul established the church. He began setting things in order. And Titus was a part of that initial work with Paul in Crete. Now, Paul has moved on. He's writing this letter. He's, Paul's not on Crete writing this letter. He's... He's off island, and he's writing it, and he's sending this letter to Titus, who is on the island. And this letter is coming to Titus, the pastor, on Crete, and Paul is telling him, remember, I left you there to finish the unfinished work. And remember, appoint elders in all the cities as I commanded you. So this letter is coming back to Titus to remind him, to encourage him, to command him concerning the work that Paul started on Crete and left Titus there to finish. So those things, the things that are lacking, those sound vague. This is a general command, but the specifics are going to come or become more clear as we work through this letter. Paul's going to become very specific in some of the things that he's telling Titus in this letter. The second thing here, he says that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. So a second very specific reason. The first seems a little general. Set in order the things that are lacking. But, but 
the and appoint elders now brings us to a very specific command. A very specific reason Paul left Titus in Crete was to appoint elders in every city as he had already commanded Titus. So Paul writes, appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. Paul's giving clear instruction to Titus as to his task while giving clear authority to Titus to appoint these elders in the churches. So this is to the benefit of Titus, and it's also to the benefit of the churches which he will be appointing those elders. So this is to encourage Titus and give him clear instruction to remind him, but also that these churches in these cities would know that the Apostle Paul, who established the church there, has given this authority to Titus to appoint elders in every city. So let's talk about appointing elders. Christ Fellowship Church is getting ready to appoint elders. And you'll, you'll be a part of this in that you'll have those elders submitted to you for your review. And we're going to talk about why that's important. So this, the Greek word uh, that's translated appoint here is the same word used in Acts chapter 3 when the apostles instructed the people to select men from their ranks so that the apostles could appoint them to serve. To appoint elders means to designate, to put in charge, or appoint certain men called to the task of shepherding the flock of God. In the King James Version of the Bible, that Greek word, kathistimi, is translated ordain. It says ordain elders in all the churches, in all the cities. In my new King James, that word translated ordain in the King James is Appoint in my New King James. Because the word appoint is more consistent, though ordain is not incorrect. It's that the word ordain carries with it something that is not being conveyed here. And most of that comes from man's tradition that he took beyond what the scripture gives us. It's why, it's why we are a reformed congregation. We believe in the doctrines of the reformers. We believe in sola scriptura. We believe scripture is the final authority. God bless the Pope, but the Pope does not have a special place in his relationship with God that you and I don't have. He does not. He has a special office that his church has given him. And they can think all kinds of things about that, but that does not make the Pope closer to God than the average Joe or the average Jane who is in Christ Jesus. Do you understand what I'm saying? Now, having said that, so 
We're talking about elders here. Appoint, ordain, or appoint elders in every city. What does that mean about those elders? It does not mean that they now have a special relationship with God that you don't have. That's not what it means. So Titus commanded, or Paul commanded Titus to appoint elders in every city. What he specifically did was he commanded Titus to appoint qualified men to be elders in every city. And these men would not hold a closer position or greater power with God as a result of their appointment or their ordination, but they would bear a far greater responsibility. It is true, elders will bear a far greater greater responsibility than you will in the day of judgment because they have been entrusted with overseeing your, your souls, shepherding your souls as men called by God to shepherd the flock of God. We're not going to go into great depth into this today, but we will as we move forward because this is worth taking some time to talk about. Because not only should men who become elders understand what they're becoming, but the congregations that they have been called by God to oversee should also understand the responsibility that these men have now, that they have come under this responsibility by God's calling. And so those men in the congregation they're in should both, both sides, both parties should understand this responsibility. Being called to be a pastor or elder or bishop, you understand those are all interchangeable terms in the New Testament. People, you know, sometimes I go to events, you know, with different churches and different traditions. And, you know, here's a guy wearing a tag that says bishop. And then there's another guy wearing a tag that says apostle. Um, you know, the only time I've ever seen one wearing a tag that says elders if I'm somewhere around Mormons. Uh, Christians don't, you know, wear elder tags, but it is funny how people like to wear the bishop tag. You know, I'm a bishop. Well, I got news for you. In the Bible, those terms are used interchangeably. A pastor, an elder, a bishop are, are not different. Now, different traditions, for instance, Catholic Church and other traditions can, can, can give bishops a higher authority in their tradition than the lowly priest or pastor of the parish. But what I'm saying to you, scripturally, biblically, those, those terms are used interchangeably. And Paul uses both terms here in his letter to Titus. So, in other words, bishop doesn't give you greater clout with God than elder or pastor does. So, when Paul is using this word, he's using the word bishop, which means overseer, as a description of what the elder is doing. What's the elder doing? 
He's not elding. He's overseeing. The overseer is just a word to describe what the elder and the pastor does. Pastor means shepherd. What's a shepherd do? Why why are there shepherds out watching their flocks? Or we could say it like this. Why are shepherds out overseeing their flocks? They're watching over them for their nurture and their protection. Notice also that when Paul commands Titus to appoint elders, it's elders, plural. The command is for Titus to appoint a plurality of elders in every city. This is consistent throughout Israel's history. It's consistent throughout the scripture. And it remains consistent in the church. A church is to have a plurality of elders, bishops and shepherds, pastors. Now, they might not all have the same responsibility in that. That doesn't mean every elder gets up every Sunday morning and preaches. But we're going to look here in just a moment at these qualifications, and we're going to see that there are qualifications that God commands for his elders. In every city as I commanded you. So the command is to appoint elders in every city. Today, that may sound kind of strange. We best understand this today as a command to appoint elders in every church. We are a biblically ruled or an elder ruled congregation because we believe that elder rule is what the Bible shows us. And it is. As Paul would establish a church in a city, that church was to have appointed elders to shepherd the flock of God for their nurture and protection. That's what Paul had tasked Titus to do, to appoint elders in every city or every church. The same is true today. Elders are appointed ultimately for the nurture and protection of God's flock. Who was commanded to appoint elders? Titus was. Now, I I drew the distinction earlier of Acts 6, 3, where Deacons were appointed. Deacons were chosen by the people and then appointed by the apostles. It's not the same with elders. Nowhere do we see elders chosen by the people. We see the apostles and we see other elders, other pastors appointing elders. Where do those elders come from? They come from that local body. And this is why the Lord commands that elders be appointed in his church to nurture and to protect the flock. These are simply ordinary men with an extraordinary calling from God upon their lives. Elders are not special men. They are qualified and called men. So Paul lays out the qualifications for elders in his letter to Titus. He also does this in his letter to Timothy. But we're going to look at these qualifications here in his letter to Titus. They're in in verses 6 through 9. Titus chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. Let me read those verses. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, 
having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination. For a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God. He reemphasizes this blameless. He must be blameless. As a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convict those who contradict. These qualifications that Paul lays out here are for the protection of all, for the protection of the congregation as well as the man considering eldership. These qualifications should be seen as preparing a man to succeed in the appointment of eldership, not preparing him to fail. So let's just, let's very succinctly go over these qualifications. If a man is blameless, a blameless man is a man who is above reproach. He is not a perfect man, he is not a sinless man, but he is a man irreproachable. So if I had some skeleton in my past where I had uh, robbed a bank and murdered someone 40 years ago and was able to successfully keep it under wraps all these years, but all of a sudden it was discovered and the DNA evidence proved, I'm not, I'm not by the way, but... And the DNA evidence proved. And I thought that I had got free all of these years. And, and here they come and they confront me and they say, we, we found evidence and we know you're the person that we've been looking for for 40 years. And I just, you're right. I, I'm the one. Now that's an extreme example, but, but blameless. An elder who is to be blameless is a, is a man, not perfect, not sinless, but a man who doesn't have those skeletons in his closet that he's never made right with God and the people around him. A husband of one wife, or we could say it this way, a one-woman man. Generally, it's believed to mean one wife at a time. This is the position of Christ Fellowship Church. It's not required that an elder be married, but if he is married, it is required that his marriage not be a point of reproach, for he is shepherding and is himself part of the bride of Christ. He's shepherding the bride of Christ. Back in, in Paul's day, it was common for men to have more than one wife. And here, this is a one-woman man the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination. And the, the short here is if a man cannot rule his own household, how can he be expected to rule the house of God? These are not points of condemnation for men. These are points of qualification for men. So that a man would know 
he is either qualified or not qualified. You know, if, if I just, if I just, you know, for some ungodly reason decided I just wanted to go be something, you know, out of the realm of possibility for me, like, um, I don't know, like if I, I, I don't know, it could be anything, and, but I have no qualification whatsoever to do it. And I go and I say, I, I want to be this. And they say, sorry, you're not qualified. Well, that's not fair. I want to. Well, I'm sorry, but you're not qualified. It's not, it's not personal. It's scriptural. This is here for the protection of the flock and the protection of those men. And so an elder has to be able to rule his own household. All of these are things that indicate we are all works in progress, right? And if I'm not qualified today, I could be qualified tomorrow or next week or next month or, or maybe you understand what I'm saying? I, I can work hard to meet the qualification. But we're going to also need to realize that it's not just meeting the qualification, but do you have a calling? For a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God. Again, he emphasizes this above reproach. What's a steward? A steward is one entrusted with something that is not their own, but they are to treat it as though it is. Here is where Paul uses the word bishop. He didn't say, for an elder must be blameless. An elder must be blameless. But we should pay attention that Paul uses this word, bishop, for a bishop must be blameless. Paul is now distinguishing. He's pointing out what the elder is called to do. It's not a different position. It's not a different calling. Bishop oversees what the elder does. And the one overseeing must be blameless as the steward of God. Not self-willed. In other words, an elder must first be submitted to God, then to his fellow elders. As Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 17, he says, submitting to one another in the fear of the Lord. Or maybe that's verse 16. So not self-willed, but submitted. Not quick-tempered. An elder must not be given to anger, but patient and long-suffering, not given to wine. As an elder, you may have wine, but wine may not have you. Being a drunkard is a sin. It must not become a reproach in the life of any brother, and especially in one called an elder. <clears throat> not violent. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. An elder cannot be a wrathful or violent man. Instead, he's to be gentle don't confuse gentleness with weakness. Not weak, but strong and gentle. Not greedy for money. The love of money is the root of all evil, the Bible teaches us. An elder can't be greedy for money. I think there are too many people, perhaps, I see them sometimes when I uh, make the mistake of turning the TV on. Sometimes I see people who I think are doing what they're doing because they seem to be greedy for money. Or you see those videos where the pastor is chastising his congregation because they didn't give enough to buy that 
$5,000 watch he wanted. Somehow I think there was a breakdown when I see men of God like that, or men who profess to be men of God, and it seems like they're more worried about the money than the flock. And that's not, that's not the way it's to be. An elder is not to be greedy for money. But they're to be hospitable. They're to be welcoming and willing to give himself as, and his things for others. This is especially needed in Paul's day when those traveling didn't have a Holiday Inn Express. And hospitality was, was genuinely needed for people to take safe refuge. An elder was to be able to provide that freely as needed. A lover of what is good. A lover of all things good. What we love is what we conform to. I'm going to say that again. What you love is what you conform to, whether you realize it or not. Love what is good. Love God. Love what is good. Be a lover of all things good. That's a qualification for an elder. Sober-minded. That means discreet, self-restrained, not thinking too highly of oneself, not thinking too lowly either, recognizing who he is in Christ. And also being sober-minded, not only about himself, but about those around him. The elder is to be just, just toward men. He's to be holy. He's to be holy toward God. In other words, as God is holy, we as elders are to strive to live holy lives. We're thankful for God's grace because we need it every single day of our lives, multiple times. Self-control is to be temperate, disciplined, having power over oneself. Every time I yelled and jumped up and down yesterday in exhilaration because of the Longhorns, I had complete control over what I was doing. I knew what I was doing. I did it gladly because I was very happy for them. But you understand what I mean. Self-control is the last characteristic listed in the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. And it is that. It is a fruit of the Spirit. Holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught. The elder must keep the faith. He must keep the inspired word of God as taught by faithful men. In other words, we don't discount what faithful men have passed down to us and say, well, Moses was a faithful man in his day, but what he wrote doesn't apply today because we live in a different century. No. The elder who does that is not a biblically qualified elder and has submitted himself to the wrath of God, and the judgment of God in a way that I would not want to have to stand before God and explain why I failed to hold fast the faithful word as it had been taught me by faithful men. In other words, the elder cannot compromise the truth. 
And then Paul finally says that, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. So an elder must be able to teach. That is not saying he must be able to preach dynamic sermons or, or wax eloquently. That's not what this means. But he must have a good handle and a growing knowledge of God's word. He must be able to encourage, to strengthen, and to convict those who dispute or speak against or oppose the truth. And he must be able to do that for the sake of the flock he's been entrusted to oversee by God. In terms of elders, the scripture commands that they are to be chosen from the local body. They are to meet the strict biblical qualifications. And there is to be a plurality of them overseeing the church. So Paul lays out these qualifications to Titus at the front end of his letter as he instructs him now to finish the unfinished business and to go throughout the cities of Crete and appoint those elders, those qualified men to oversee the flock of God. God has not commanded elders to do anything different then than he commands them to do today. And you as a congregation are to embrace those elders, pray for those elders, know that those elders are there to watch over your soul and they will give an account to God one day for how they did that. It is a responsibility you do not have but it is a responsibility that God has placed on his elders, his pastors, his bishops, his overseers, the shepherds of his flock. No man should enter into that lightly, but if he is by chance called by God to that, he should rejoice and take that responsibility soberly and seriously, knowing that God will equip him for such calling. And so we have come to the place we are today in the history of the church because the church has faithfully carried out these commands given to us in Scripture. We can also see where the church has unfaithfully done these things. But we purpose to be a faithful church, not a perfect church, because we're not a perfect church. There are no perfect churches. But we purpose to be a faithful church. We purpose to look at the scripture and say, you know what, if what we're doing isn't lining up with the scripture, we shouldn't bring the scripture over here to us and make it conform to us. No, we need to go in line and conform to the scripture and make sure that what we're doing and what we're practicing is in line with the word of God. And the elder must be willing to fade the heat from the congregation, friends, families, whoever it is. And say, I'm not going to answer to you on the day of judgment. I'm going to answer to my Lord. And when I take the title elder, I need to know who I'm going to answer to one day. And that should motivate me to do the best that I can to align myself with God's word and be faithful to that. 
It is a serious calling. It is a serious charge. But it is for the good of God's flock. And it is for his glory. Amen. Amen. We're going to stop there today. We're going to keep going there next week in Titus. It's time to come to the table. All of this would not be possible without Jesus. He came willingly in submission to the will of his Father and in love for his bride and laid down his life. The last Adam did what the first Adam failed to do. He gave himself up for his bride that she might be saved in her sin. So church, as you consider all that Jesus has done for us, come to the table. If you count yourself a member of his covenant people, whether you're a member of this church or not, you are welcome to this table. I welcome you to the table, and I welcome you to Jesus. We'll all eat and drink together. Please stand. In your charge today, congregation, I want to remind you, as we've talked about elders from Paul's letter to Titus, that it's not just elders that have a responsibility, but congregations have a responsibility to search the scripture, to see whether their pastors, whether their elders are leading them in the truth or not. The final authority for all things is not what an elder or a pastor or a priest or a pope says. The final authority for all things is what God's word says. And we are all held to that standard of God's word. We live in a day and a time where we see churches blessing abortion clinics. We see churches celebrating homosexuality and lifestyles that the Bible blatantly calls sinful. And we say, how did that happen? And I submit to you it happened because congregations stopped holding their elders accountable as elders began to drift off the path that God had set in His Word because they stopped holding fast the faithful word delivered to us by faithful men. And the only way we'll see that correction brought to the church and to our nations is for the church once again, for pastors and elders and bishops and the children of God, the flock of God, the saints of God to go back to the scripture to love God's truth more than they love the lie, more than they love the things that, that distract us and draw us away, the things that are so convenient for us to believe or to say we believe. And our prayer and our work must be to restore strong men in leadership in God's church, who will stand for the truth, who will declare the truth, who will live the truth to their own hurt. When that happens, and God's people are equipped to do the very same thing, to stand for the truth, to speak the truth, even to their own hurt, 
that's when we will begin to see God heal our land. And the things that seem so wrong begin to be made right. But it will not happen before then. It will require the hard work of elders and the hard work of every saint of God who names the name of Jesus and confesses to hold fast his faithful word delivered by faithful men. Amen? Amen. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you. Have a great day.